We are studying through the book of Mark, and we are up into Mark chapter 8. Really, it's um, getting close to the culmination of the story. Uh, Mark is building toward, and he's, I, I, we don't know the exact timetable, but it's like in the last six months prior to the um, crucifixion, or in that sort of neighborhood, when we're looking at Mark chapter 8. And we have before us a very interesting passage of Scripture, very interesting, uh, and actually kind of confusing, uh, which some of them are. Uh, I have, so I have two titles, two running titles. One is the main point of the passage, the, the teaching point that Jesus is making directly, specifically. Uh, he warns uh, about the, the leaven, or sometimes called yeast, of the Pharisees and Herod. Um, but then I think this is a fair working title, too, is learning when just everything goes wrong. Because <laughs> uh, this passage has a lot of like, whoa, oh, no, oh, goodness, oh, I didn't think that was going to happen. And why did you say that? And that sort of thing all mixed in together, just like imagine that little traffic jam as uh, you're heading north, it's shut down, and you are able to drive <laughs> and merge into the left, uh, the southbound lane. Uh, that would be fun, you know. That's, that's traffic trying to get back to Berkeley this afternoon. <laughs> As my dear wife is going to take our kids back to school today. No, uh, that's a bad prediction. I don't think it'll be that way. But uh, so l- allow me to read the scripture, the holy, holy scripture, and uh, then we will look at it together in our remaining time together. Uh, let's read. Then this is Mark chapter 8. I'll read it for you. Mark 8, beginning at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Uh, Just a note, the verb tenses here indicate that this isn't just a two-minute confrontation. It's uh, sort of like ongoing. It may have been half an hour of haggling and back and forth, because the verb tenses indicate an ongoing kind of action. You can, see, you can hear that in the English, too. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is zipping back and forth in a human-powered boat, perhaps sailboat too, across the pretty big lake called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, They just had arrived on the Jewish side, back to sort of Galilee, and they're, you know, get off the boat, and there's this confrontation of the Pharisees, and then at the end of that, he gets back in the boat, heads back over the lake again uh, with his disciples. Now, verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. That's an important note. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, 
And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Matthew makes this very clear. They totally missed the point. He mentions leaven. It's about bread. So they think he's talking about lunch. They think he's talking about literal bread. You know, They began discussing, again, the ongoing language of the verb. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, <laughs> said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Let's pause there for a second. This is a very harsh rebuttal from Jesus. Very harsh response. He's clearly, is it fair to say irritated? He's not happy with them, right? And he's confronting them. Uh, and, And really the language here is very harsh because having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear. That's a quote from the Bible talking about idols that human beings make. We read that text you know, it was a couple of weeks ago, I think. You know, they make an idol, it has eyes, it doesn't see, it has ears, it doesn't hear. So this is a very confrontational uh, of Jesus to his disciples. He is definitely frustrated with them. Um, and then so he's going to do a little review here. We've just come off the second massive feeding event called the feeding of the 4,000. Earlier, like a few months ago, he fed 5,000. And so he says this. <clears throat> you know, almost what I say, come on, boys. <laughs> come on, now let's think this through. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. <laughs> and he said to them, do you not yet understand? So that's why my secondary title is learning when everything goes wrong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture. And we pray that even though it's kind of confusing and can even seem discouraging, uh, help us to see the good news in it and, and to be encouraged and even inspired by your holy word today. Teach us, we pray. We depend on you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see uh, what you're saying, what you have laid out before us. And thank you. Uh, for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's first deal with the first part of the text, the Pharisees coming to him. Now, this would have been, you know, for any sort of regular person, a very scary event. You know, Jesus is being confronted by the most powerful men in his culture, uh, the Jewish culture. These are These are... Earlier in the texts, it says that they came up from uh, Jerusalem to check him out. Uh, these are the powers that be. 
They're, and they're the holy people, particularly the Pharisees. And they're coming to confront him. And what is it that they say to him? It says, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven. The Pharisees come to prove that Jesus is a fake, really. Their motivation, earlier in the book, he's already said that these people are his enemies. They're clearly, specifically plotting to trap him and to catch him, and these are the guys who will push the Romans to crucify him. So these are not friendlies. These are definitely enemies, and Jesus, of course, knows this very well. They're not coming innocently saying, you know, our faith is a little weak. Could you show us a miracle and then, and then we'll believe you? That's not their motivation at all. Their motivation is actually to come and disprove Jesus. But he will not dance to their tune, will he? Their, their lack of faith about Jesus has driven them to reject the overwhelming evidence that's already there. It's not like Mark doesn't record any miracles. Literally, there's been thousands of miracles recorded in the book of Mark. There are summary verses where he says he healed you know, many people. All day long he's been healing people. Another verse says he healed people over the whole region. And then he fed the 5,000, which again, I know I keep beating on this, but it's one of my favorite ideas amongst thousands of others. But it's not just 5,000. There were 5,000 males, and it says plus women and children. So 15, 20,000 people he fed with a little boy's lunch. I mean, what bigger sign do you want to see? You know? And then he did the 4,000 just recently, and he's, he's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's done it remotely. He hasn't even been in the same area. And he says, your daughter is well. And they go and find the daughter's well. So there's an abundance. They're literally, literally swimming in miracles. It's all over. The evidence of God is everywhere for them. This is why I always am interested when somebody who is agnostic or, or atheistic, they'll say things like, there is no evidence for God. They freely say that. And from my point of view, it's like, what? <laughs> have, you, have you seen a bird fly? Have you seen a hummingbird? Zip, stop, and then zip again, backwards. This is miraculous. There's just absolutely no logical way to explain this intelligent design. Okay, I know I'm terribly biased, but this is my point of view, okay? It's like we are all swimming in the miraculous wonder of life itself. And so it's not really an, a, a fact that they don't have enough evidence. They're just demanding a sign, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat, oh Jesus. And he will not dance for them. They have rejected the overwhelming evidence of the reality of God, the reality of Jesus, and the divine sentence upon them is that now they won't perceive the signs that are all around them. Because it's kind of ironic, right? He says no sign will be given to them. 
No sign to this generation. Again, hear the word of God again. It's very powerful. Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. He's saddened by this. They have rejected him, and now God is rejecting them. We have opportunity. We're surrounded. We're swimming in the miraculous. And we say, I don't believe in God. There is no God. And eventually God pulls us away from sensing the miracle, the wonder around us. And that's exactly what's happening here. It says, no, let me get it here. Why does this generation seek a sign truly? I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. But pause for a moment and think of the irony of that statement. What's the biggest miraculous sign as a foundation for all of the Christian faith. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no faith. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we have no salvation. It is the center piece of our faith. You know, hallelujah. I heard a speaker the other day saying, Moses is dead, and Jesus is dead. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is very much alive, very much alive. And the Bible declares that every knee will bow, every, every eye will see him. He has risen. He has risen indeed. He is risen. Hallelujah. Happy Easter. This is the truth. But the irony here is they, this generation, this class of people will not, again, no sign will be given to this generation. Will these human beings be alive when Jesus is crucified, buried, and risen again? Probably. 100% of them will be there. Will these human beings have a part in producing the biggest sign ever? Yeah, (laughs) they're actually going to help produce this sign and they will not perceive it. I just think it's amazing, divine irony here. Uh, And it shows the divine sentence that we want to avoid in this text. We don't want to be a part of that generation that rejects God to the point where he rejects us and he shuts down our perceptive ability that we perceive God, that we believe, that we wonder at who he is. Let's be reminded that we are dependent upon God for revelation. He has to open our hearts and minds to his revelation. Without his work, we are all naturally closed. We don't get it. We're blind. We're deaf. We don't get it. We need him. So don't reject him. Uh, here's one of uh, a great passage of Scripture. It's Matthew 11, 25 and following. Listen to this word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, and I just want to pause there for a second, because what is Matthew 11? It's a record, systematic, uh, systematic record of all the rejection that Jesus has gone through. A whole, he spent his He preached his heart out and did miracles in these three cities. And they rejected him. And he pronounces woe on them because they had a huge flow of revelation. 
and they didn't respond to it. They didn't say, yes, Jesus, I need you, I want you, I come to you. They rejected him. So they have the woe of God pronounced upon them. In, it's recorded very well in Matthew 11. And it says, at this time, Jesus declared, what would he say? Oh, this is so depressing. I gave my heart and soul, and the ministry just died. And people rejected me. It's so depressing. See, on a human level, that would probably be pretty much expected. But he's got a higher view of things. Hallelujah. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. That's the Pharisees. This august group that comes to confront him. We are the authorities. Look at us. We've got these amazing clothes on. You know, and we're here to confront you. Quake in your boots, Jesus, and pull a rabbit out of the, su- the hat for us, please. And he says, listen, that represents the fact that you have rejected all of the revelation that God has already given you, and no sign will be given to you. So he's hidden these things from the wise, and understanding, the cynical, the academic, the rejecter of, of the revelation of God. He's hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This whole process is the gracious will of God to hide and to reveal. Continuing in Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, we're dependent on God to reveal to us the truth, the the reality of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then, you know what the next phrase is? You've heard this next phrase. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. That's King James in the ESV. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. What's the response? Come to Jesus. He will reveal the Father to you. Uh, So there's a harshness if we reject the revelation of God, but there's an openness and a revealing. If we come to Jesus, he'll give us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. So no sign will be given to the that generation, that classification of people who decides that they do not believe the flow of revelation that's all around them. And I, I like verse 13. Well, I don't know if I like it, but I think I find it very interesting. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, not to be too flippant, but don't miss the boat. You know, they... They see Jesus sailing away. There's their hope. He's gone. He's rejected them because they have not 
accepted the revelation that God has given to them already. Now, I found just this week in reading the Proverbs, this little, this big, it looks big on the screen, just a few verses from Proverbs 3. And it's so fitting to explain what's going on in verses 11, 12, and 13 of Mark 8. It says, Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. I'm saying that the Pharisees are violent. They will kill Jesus. They're powerful men. They're men of power. They can literally have people killed. Take this person outside of town, outside of town and stone him and that sort of thing. And they're devious here. They're not being straight with Jesus. So they are an abomination to Yahweh, to the Lord. But the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous toward the scorners. Now see, the Bible talks a lot about scorners, mockers. One key passage, um, I'm not going to turn to it because I'm not sure exactly where it is. <laughs> but it says this, in the last day there will be mockers, scorners coming and say, where is the promise of his coming? You know, it's, been, it's been like this for thousands of years. <laughs> Jesus is coming back? You know, come on, what a fairy tale. People will mock and, and laugh at us. Uh, again, I'm thinking of like the... The well-educated, the well-heeled, the highest levels of academia. You know, walk into Columbia University and say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. <laughs> you know, and you, you might get some stares. Actually, I think you're mentally ill, to be quite honest with you. Uh, there's, uh, there's something wrong with you, particularly if you believe in a God who's powerful enough to create with speech. They just think that's whacked out and completely mentally ill, although it's clearly what the Bible teaches. God's powerful, hugely powerful. And so toward the scorners, he is scornful. Isn't that interesting? It's like turnabout is fair play. God scorns those who scorn him. The Bible says he laughs at them from heaven. He's not shaken up by the we're here, we're powerful, we want answers. Uh, no, he scorns them. No sign will be given to that generation. So where do we want to be? But to the humble, he gives favor. Let us be humble. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Again, that's Proverbs three thirty-one through 35. So, Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to have six observations in my sermon today, and we've already covered three of them. So, see, you know, we're, we're halfway done. Isn't that exciting? Um, first observation, we should notice and appreciate the miracles all around us. I mean, this is where the Pharisees went wrong. They didn't notice, and they didn't appreciate the miracles. And there are dire results uh, if we do not appreciate what God has already given to us. We should be people who are looking for ways to praise God wherever we are. Secondly, 
Jesus is incredibly patient with his enemies. Uh, he's argued with them for a long time. And even here, there's a grace and a patience. You say, well, it sounds like he said, I'm leaving, I'm going to get in a boat and go and never come back. You know, he could have brought God's wrath and judgment upon them. He could have breathed out fire from heaven upon them. Uh, but he lets them commiserate. And, you know, there's a grace in that because the Bible actually record, records later on several of these people will come to Christ as well. It says several priests came to Christ, recorded in the book of Acts. So he's very patient with his enemies. And then I think there's this aspect to it too. Jesus completely trusts God's plan. You know, this rejection, he knows that this is a part of God's plan. He has to go through this terrible, deep, dark time of being rejected and tested and convicted in a trial and sentenced to death in a trial, unfairly convicted but he completely trusts God's plan. All right. Now, as I said at the beginning, there's a central part of this text, and there's so much else going on, we almost miss it, but let's take a minute and look at it again. It is uh, verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware. There's two words there, and it really means look carefully and watch He wants us to notice this. They've just had this experience. They were there watching him deal with these Pharisees. And all they're thinking about is something else. But he he wants to say, listen, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, just for a few moments, let's try to understand what he's saying. First of all, leaven, as I said, is yeast. You take like a a teaspoon, you can see it in the background, and throw it in with, uh, you don't even, I don't know, you just need a little bit, okay? And you put it in with flour and mix it up and with some warm water and the right temperature. That yeast takes over the entire lump of flour and creates, you know, delicious, wonderful bread that rises and can be baked at that point and come out nice and fluffy and beautiful, because that little bit of yeast has a profound effect on, on the flour. And that's the metaphor here. There's a little bit of powerful, potent stuff that the Pharisees and Herod represent that we, as disciples of Jesus, need to beware of. And again, the double, watch out, watch out. Look out. This is super dangerous. Now, the, for the Pharisees... I think, again, they represent, they have, are in a position of power, clearly, and they're willing to protect their position uh, and their popularity in the sense of the whole society looks to them uh, for, pop, for leadership and control. They're, they're the guys, you know, they run the Jewish society underneath the Roman uh, uh, canopy. And, and they're, they're willing to protect that for their. Jesus is a perceived threat. He is a threat to uh, some of their core beliefs, actually, because they've added so much to the law of Moses, and he's there to fulfill the law of Moses, and the system will radically change. And they're there to protect their system no matter whatever happens. And they'll use influence, like yeast in flour, to 
spread hatred and distrust of Jesus. Look at the crucifixion. You know, what was the crowd chanting? No, save him. He healed my Aunt Susie. You know, no, you didn't hear that in the crowd, did you? What, what, what do they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. Why? The Pharisees, their yeast spread really well. And the whole mass of people, many of whom thought good things about Jesus, turned against Jesus because of the power uh, that is abused by the Pharisees. Uh, and uh, the other one is Herod. What, that, that's kind of weird. Like, what's Herod thrown in there for? Again, he's a person in authority in this society. And we, what we know about Herod is he kind of represents worldliness. Herod is, you know, supposedly a religious man, but really he just lives for his own pleasure. He's the one who married his sister-in-law, Herodias, uh, in uh, an act of adultery and fornication. And, and he's the one who, what, treated John the Baptist so poorly, <laughs> killed him because his, uh, the, the girl, Herodias' daughter, danced for him, remember, and, and gave him the request, hey, is there anything we, we can do for you? I'll give you half, up to half of my kingdom. And he's, they say, we want the head of John the Baptist. And the, the text says, because of his friends, you know, he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his friends, his popularity, his personal indulgence, and his pleasure were all important to Herod. So here, these two things, we have people of, of large influence in our society. These, these can be you know, popular, they can be movie stars, you know, that uh, are against Jesus Christ. They can be academics, they can be professors in a university. That They might use cynicism and laughter and, uh, like I said, poking at us and saying, you believe in a, a magical uh, fairy tale if you believe in Jesus. And it, just a little bit of that laughter and cynicism can infect us, and we have to watch out for it. We have to be careful. And Herod more represents just the idea of worldly pleasure. I, I'm, I want to live for me. I've got to fulfill my life, and I'm willing to reject Jesus if it means my added pleasure for here and now. God's called me to a straight and narrow path, and yet I give in to temptation. I'd rather have pleasure now than to follow Jesus. So that's kind of what we think is the, the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. In researching this, I found this really great quote about cynicism. Cynicism is the humor of hatred. Uh, now, we don't know that the Pharisees were humorously cynical, uh, but it is a very powerful tool to poke fun at people that you hate. And you can use that cynicism about them and laughter to demean them as human beings, as people, and think they have no honor. We don't need to respect them. We don't need to listen to them. We can demean them. And why? Because I was able to make other people laugh at them. Super powerful, right? And this definitely is applied against the faith of the Bible in our day and age. If people can, you know, on... I'm no expert on this. I'll just throw out Saturday Night Live. I know they do a lot of cynical things. I don't know if they out, out wide 
laugh at people of the Bible. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But let's pretend they did, okay? (laughs) I mean, how powerful it is to poke fun at people who believe and reject uh, God's revelation with the use of cynicism. And this this English gentleman, uh, Herbert Tree, said that. I thought it was a great quote. Cynicism is the humor of hatred. They hate Jesus, so they will be cynical about him. Okay, back to my six observations. Uh, The first three we covered, and the fourth one is this. Jesus wants us to see some of our biggest dangers. He's saying, this is a huge danger for us. The leaven of the Pharisees, people who are in power and position and have a sense of popularity, and then the leaven of Herod, which represents, again, power, but he uses his power for his own personal pleasure and personal indulgence. Let's get back to our text. Let's see how the great disciples are responding to all this great teaching that Jesus is giving. <laughs> it's, it's sad, but it's also really kind of humorous. Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing at them. It sounds like cynicism, right? <laughs> no. But it is really funny. Uh, he, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing, hey, did you guys bring lunch? Peter, I thought you were bringing that bag of bread. We had all those leftovers. Where, what'd you do with them, you know? And they're, they're looking at their empty plate. Like, well, I guess Jesus must be talking about lunch. Um, and I think it's fair to ask this question. Are the disciples stupid? Sounds terrible to ask that. But they look kind of stupid in this text. And, you know, here they are. Uh, Jesus is teaching and somebody... Excuse me, will, will this be, is this going to be on the final? <laughs> Do I have to actually take notes, Jesus, here? Or can I just sort of daydream while I listen in class? Well, I think the answer to that question is this. Yes. <laughs> but are they alone in being stupid? Uh, no. You know, who doesn't qualify? Who will not humbly admit that at times this is us, you know? Uh, this is so true. And if Jesus is patient with his enemies, he's patient with his followers too, with his friends. And actually, the admonition that he gives them, I said it was harsh, but there's hope. I'm going to admonish you because I really expect more of you. Remember, that's what rebuke means, to put honor upon you, to put value upon I expect you to do better, you know. Uh, it reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter, right? He said, Satan has uh, requested that he sift you like, like, like grain, like wheat. And I have you know, prayed that you'll go through that successfully. And then when you return, you'll be able to uh, build up your brothers. Uh, we grow through these sorts of things. So here's my, back to my six observations. Uh, number f- five is, the Bible boldly presents very embarrassing information about its human author, authors. You see that in this text? I mean, who wrote this? Human beings, and probably Peter, we think, influenced Mark very highly. You would think he'd say, you know, Mark, let's just sort of clear away from that. That was kind of embarrassing. I mean, we were hungry. We were tired. It was getting late. Um, let's just leave that part out. <laughs> 
But this is so beautiful because the Bible boldly presents this. And why, why is that? It's so that we can relate to it. Wait, we sang a song, holy, holy, holy. And only you are holy. You are perfect. Guess what, dear friends? We've invited you today to come and worship God. Not me, not you. We worship God who is perfect in glory. And I can't remember all the words. <laughs> but he's perfect. We worship him. That's what our faith is, to bring us to God, to worship how wonderful, how patient, how kind he is. We're humble. We admit we are very embarrassing to ourselves and to each other. Anybody who agrees with that can say amen. Amen. Did you go through a day last week where you didn't embarrass yourself? You know, did, you, did we go through an hour? Let's just be honest. You know, we're, we're, we're sinful human beings. And yeah, I'm going to say sometimes that I'm an idiot. <laughs> I know we don't, don't want to say, don't, don't let your kids call each other idiots, but we can admit it ourselves that I have limitations. <laughs> now, uh, my sixth observation here, is I, I like this too, and then I'm going to add a seventh because you guys are so such a good audience. <laughs> Six observations here. Notice God's arithmetic, right? It's so cool in this text. He goes, okay, wait a minute, guys. You're worried about lack of bread. Who am I? What did I do? Let's just reveal. Let's rework on the math here of God. God's arithmetic is... I started with less, I did more, and I had a bigger remainder. And then the second time, I started with a bit more, I did less, and I had a smaller remainder. You know, in other words, I can do anything I want to do. If you want a pizza, we can have a pizza, guys. You don't even know what it is yet, but I guarantee you like it, you know. Um, He's just saying, come on, you're with the source of life here. I am the source of living bread. I can do anything for you. Trust me completely. So that is the good news in this text. God's math is is different. You know, uh, that's what he says in verses 19, uh, 20, and 21. My mic keeps falling off. That's why I'm doing this. Okay, I'm going to close in. Observation 7 good news. This text is actually filled with gospel. It sounded like a weird bent sort of text where the disciples flub up, you know, but it is. But that's where the gospel comes in. So, so good news. First off, because he was rejected, we can be accepted. Because the Pharisees pushed him to crucifixion. That's the means of our acceptance before God. We should, I mean, in a way, we're saying, thank you, Jesus, for being willing to be rejected so that we can be accepted. That's the good news. Secondly, as I already said, Jesus is incredibly patient with his enemies and his friends. Why doesn't he just say, okay, guys, get off the boat. You know, I, I don't need you anymore. It's going to be like disciples wanted. 
We're going to have an IQ test this next time I choose disciple. Because I, uh, no, he sticks with the disciples he's already chosen. And it's this beautiful, he's in pace, patient with us. He doesn't ever turn to his disciples and say, okay, you're, you're off the boat, buddy. You know, forget it. Uh, he's here to remind us and to uh, bring us along and teach us. And then uh, my, this is point, right, point seven. God has unlimited power to meet all our needs. Uh, God's math is the final, final calculation. God is a God of, of all power. And in this text, he's saying, you guys, don't worry, you have one loaf of bread. Don't you remember I am Jesus? I can provide as much as you need. Uh, don't get, be all upset about the details of life. I will provide what you need. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for feeding us the bread of life in this text of Scripture. We thank you for your amazing patience with us. We are sorry that we need it so much. But we're so thankful that you, you willingly provide us with grace. We thank you for the gospel in this text. The very rejection of these Pharisees turned out to be our salvation because they pushed Jesus. He had to be crucified. And in that crucifixion, he was dying for our sins. And he was buried and rose again in victory over our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the patience of Jesus. He's, he's reprimanding, and yes, it, it sounds like he's losing some of his patience. But overall, he's so patient with us. We thank you for that. And then we thank you for your calculations, your miraculous calculations. With you, two plus two doesn't have to equal four, as you are the God of all capabilities. Amen.